Okay, we're going to be looking at Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17 this morning. If you have your Bible, you can head over there. Um, Let's take a moment to pray. God, as we look into your word, we just pray that um, this book of Revelation will be revealed to us. You'd give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to be able to properly handle this book and respond to it uh, faithfully. God, it, it is confusing it is weird we acknowledge that it is a complex book but we want to receive it in such a way that it strengthens our faith bolsters our commitment to you fortifies us in our devotion to you and in our desire to live for you every day so to that end we just pray and ask that you would work by your spirit through your word in and through us as a church this morning amen Okay, I'm going to read the passage. You can follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and even slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able stand. So we've been walking through the book of Revelation, took a little hiatus a few uh, months, uh, for a few months to do a different series. Now we're back into it. We've watched how each of these seven seals is sequentially being broken by Jesus. And there's been a succession of judgments that have emerged with the breaking of each seal. The first four, the first four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then the fifth seal is a vision of those who have been martyred for their faith. And now John is given a vision of a cataclysmic upheaval of the natural order. Now, if you're able to picture in your mind's eye what John sees, it's really, really sobering. It's very shocking, jarring. And the vision ends with this really desperate petition by those on the earth for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And they say the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who can, who can endure this day? Who could possibly stand there and receive what this judgment holds and then after the judgment has passed to remain standing? And the inference is no one can. What's going on here? How are we to understand this vision How are we to connect it to our everyday lives here now? How do we respond to it? Well, what I thought I'd do this morning is I was going to walk through a summation of each of the four views or interpretations of Revelation that we've been looking at. Christians for 2,000 years have uh, kind of landed in one of four tracks of how to read and interpret Revelation. So I'm going to summarize what each of those views take this unsealing of the sixth seal to be and then press into what it means for you and I because there are going to be some commonalities. 
So let's start with the historicist perspective. Remember, this is the perspective that would say the book of Revelation is basically, if you stretch it out like a scroll, it's a timeline of history between um, when the vision was given in the first century to when Jesus comes back. And these seals and these signs and these symbols all have a direct meaning and they're um, connected to specific events or people in history. It could be the Reformation, it could be um, Constantine's vision, um, could be the establishment of the church or global missions. And how a historicist reads this is that these verses symbolize the fall of paganism to Christianity in the Roman Empire. So between the first, second, third, and fourth centuries, paganism wanes and ultimately gives way to Christianity becoming the dominant religion. And a historicist says that's what we're seeing in these verses. Now for most people, you might hear that and say like, what? Like I don't really see how that connects at all. But what a historicist does is it really leans into reading these texts from the, uh, from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, natural upheavals or language that speaks to massive natural upheavals are often used as a symbol of a socio-political upheaval happening at the level of society. So sometimes the Old Testament talks about earthquakes or it uses languages of uh, the moon being turned uh, darkened and the sun being darkened and stars falling from the skies. We'll look at some of those passages in a moment. But what's important from the historicist perspective is they would say in the Old Testament, people talked about rulers and elites and kings, pagan kings, as stars in the sky not because they were high and lifted up, actually. They saw themselves like that, but that's the way non-Christians saw them. And you think, well, that's weird. And it's like, well, that's what we do all the time. We have stars and celebrities. We have sports stars and political stars and cultural stars that we elevate and say, wow, this is, these are the people that I look to for inspiration and guidance. And what we're seeing here, says the, histor- the historicist perspective, is that we're seeing these um, people in these positions of power being brought low. And Jesus and his gospel going out into the world and ascending in power. And so we're looking in a rearview mirror of what happened during about a three to 350 year stretch early on in um, the first century, sorry, the first millennium. So that's the historicist perspective. The preterist perspective, remember, these guys think that almost everything we're reading in Revelation, except for the final few chapters, has already happened. And it happened really quickly with the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. So how do they read this passage of the sixth seal? What is going on? Well, they say, this is the cataclysmic judgment of God against the Jewish ruling authorities and the nation of Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And that judgment, that cataclysmic devastation was focused on the siege of Jerusalem and eventually the destruction of the second temple in AD 70. Now again, we still might hear that and say, what? I don't really see how they're making this connection. Well, one commentator said, when we read about four horses going out into the world, 
almost no one believes that there are actually four horses and riders because the scripture itself says this horse and rider was conquest or this horse and rider represented uh, pestilence. And so to the preterists, they say these convulsions of nature in the sixth seal are probably to be understood the same way. Striking and terrible things are going to happen upon the wicked persecutors of the church. Remember, several times when Jesus is talking to churches in his letters to the churches early on in Revelation, he talks about those who say they are Jews, but are actually not. They're part of the synagogue, they're part of the ruling elite, but they actually don't have a heart towards God, and his judgment is coming against them. So the preterists say, yeah, this sixth seal was um, fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, maybe within 15 years of this being given. N.T. Wright says, In the Old Testament, the language about the sun turning black, the moon becoming like blood, stars falling from the heaven, heaven, those were regularly employed to speak about what we today would call like earth-shattering events. When we talk about an earth-shattering event in your own life or in the culture's life, we don't actually mean the earth was shattered. We mean something has happened that is so significant, there's a very clear before and after. So 9-11 would be an example of an earth-shattering event. Everything globally changed after the destruction of the Twin Towers. Listen to this language that God through the prophet Isaiah uses to talk about his judgment, not at the end of the world or the end of the age, but against the pagan empire of Babylon. He writes in Isaiah 13, Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. When Babylon falls, did those things literally happen? No. They are there to say God's judgment is coming and it's going to lead to a complete upheaval of what people assume is the way things are. Babylon's in charge. They're awesome. Always will be. Greatest empire ever. Listen to the language that's used in the book of Ezekiel against Egypt. God says to the empire of Egypt, when I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. I will darken all the shining lights in the heavens over you and will bring darkness on your land. This is the declaration of the Lord God. In a judgment against the nation of Edom, God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 34, all the stars in the sky will dissolve. The sky will roll up like a scroll and its stars will all wither as leaves wither on the vine and foliage on the fig tree. So we're getting some of that parallel language. But that's not a judgment, that's not a proclamation of the judgment that people are going to experience at the end of the age. It was specifically against Edom. And then listen to this uh, forecast of judgment against Israel given through the prophet Hosea where God through the prophet is calling out God's people for entering into pagan practices and participating in yes what God told them to do but also in pagan worship in the high places on the mountains God says the high places of wickedness will be destroyed it is the sin of Israel so what follows is a judgment against Israel thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars and then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. 
God says, the judgment I'm going to bring against these people who have participated in an adulterous relationship with me, have turned their backs on me, will be so severe, they will be begging for the natural world, in a sense, to swallow them up and hide them from my judgment. This is the same language Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the power of the heavens, sorry, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when is Jesus talk like when is this going to happen? He actually says it. He says, truly, truly, I mean, I mean, amen, amen. You can take this to the bank. What I just talked about, he said, this generation, not meaning us, but like the people who are listening to his words, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So the preterist says, okay, God said he was going to judge Israel. And Jesus said it was going to happen within his lifetime. And it did in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, complete annihilation, that, you know, that brings a stop to things like the Pharisees, like it's just over. Like there's so much about um, temple Judaism which stops. You know, it's a historical brick wall in many ways. So the preterist says, this breaking of the sixth seal is that major judgment. Now the preterist will say, that's the sixth seal, but what it does is it gives us a picture of what will happen at the final day of judgment for those who reject and ignore, ignore God. But a preterist would say this particular seal and all of these seals were fulfilled in the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Okay, the futurist perspective. This is the one that most Christians are familiar with. There's going to be a rapture of the church at some point in the future, which will kind of um, facilitate a seven-year great tribulation, and these seals are going to be broken during that tribulation. Some people argue all over all seven years. Some futurists say, well, just over the first three and a half years because of certain things that the book of Daniel talks about. But how futurists read this is that this sixth seal is the coming of Jesus bodily. This seal heralds the beginning of the final days or the literal end of days through grand cosmic disturbances. And futurists are kind of split. Some think that you can read this literally, like there's literally going to be an earthquake that devastates the world. There's going to be signs in the heavens that anybody, no matter where they are in terms of the locality, can, real, and, and, and can see and experience and they see this as a judgment of God. Other futurists say, well... No, it, I, I'd, you know, they would borrow that language from the Old Testament and say there's just going to be massive upheaval on a scale that we've never experienced before, and this is still symbolic language. And some would kind of do a little mix of both where they would say, well, maybe some of these signs and symbols are a result of something like a major nuclear war. And so what we're seeing here is that, you know, the, the sun is darkened because of uh, nuclear winter and different things like that. So Again, futurists are a little, they're not unified in terms of how they understand things, but that what they do is they say, this seal hasn't been broken yet. It will in the future. And when it does, everybody is going to experience, everyone left on earth is going to experience these natural and social devastations. Joel 2 says, and the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which in the Old Testament was a kind of a, a term for God's forthcoming judgment like final judgment it says the sun will be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the lord 
So whatever's happening, a, a futurist would say, this causes anyone left on the earth to recognize that God's day of wrath has come and they try and flee to escape it. So the historicist so far has said this already happened in the past, but over a long period of time, over centuries. The preterist says it happened deep into the past in the first century with the destruction. The futurist says the sixth seal is yet to have happened, but it will. And it will kind of bring a closure to the great tribulation. And then there's the idealist, or sometimes it's called a spiritualist perspective. And this perspective says all of Revelation needs to be read as a symbolic um, back and forth between the forces of good and evil, which cycles through history until, and will cycle through history over and repeat itself until Jesus returns. And they would say that the breaking of the sixth seal is the second coming of Jesus. They would say it's only seals one to five that are repeated through history. That that cycles through history. But what we're seeing in the breaking of the sixth seal is God bringing an end to that cycle. And God saying, I have now decided to step in and capital I intervene and bring all this momentum of death and sin and destruction to an end. And I will establish my kingdom, capital K, not just a spiritual kingdom, but a physical kingdom. And so this is the great day of his wrath, where he's been withholding that intervention until now, and now he, in a sense, lets loose. And it represents the climax of all these cycles of judgment that have been happening for centuries. And the sweep of what is affected, notice that it's kind of like every part of nature, the ground, the skies, the heavens, and every class of person. You can be a king, you can be a general, you can be a noble, you can be a slave person, you can be free. No one's untouched by this. The second coming of Christ holds immediate ramifications for every person. Your money's not going to be able to allow you to hide. Your social standing isn't going to allow you to hide. There's nowhere on earth that you can go to physically hide. The day, one commentator says, will, spend an, will spell an end to the entire universe as we know it. And the breaking of the sixth seal literally marks the end of the age. Isaiah 2, in prophesying about this end of the age, this great day of the Lord. It says, People will flee to caves and the rocks and into holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. So those are the four different ways that people, Christians, theologians, have tried to understand what's going on here. Now those are pretty divergent in some of the particularities. I'm not going to tell you how you need to interpret this seal, although, you know, personally, I think there are ways of reading this text that are stronger than others. So I, I lean towards a particular perspective when it comes to this seal. But I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. And that is that all of these perspectives affirm the same thing. They affirm the same core teaching of the Bible. And that is, while we might not understand all the details of the timeline, the sequence of events preceding it, whether some of those events in that sequence have already happened, are happening, or will happen, the details are a little fuzzy. 
a day of judgment is coming. It's coming for you and I. And what every view is going to affirm is that you can't outrun that day, you can't forestall that day, you can't evade that day. You can't run and hide from it. There's no psychological, physiological, relational mechanism that will allow you to avoid that day of judgment. Because God has set a day and an hour where he will come to judge the world. And again, Christians can get fuzzy exactly. What's that judgment going to look like? Does it happen in the twinkling of an eye? Does the judgment happen for like 10,000 years because you have to go over everyone's personal record before God? Don't, don't miss the forest for the trees. A day of judgment is coming. And that ought to arrest our attention and, and get our attention. I think regardless of where you stand or where you're grappling or thinking through on interpreting this sixth seal, I think the ground-level truth that we should all invite ourselves to reckon with is that you can't outrun God forever. You just you can't outrun God forever. History is moving towards an endgame. It has a purpose. It has a point. And the grand purpose is actually spelled out in the last few chapters of Revelation. It's a glorious vision where those who are uh, in Christ, who have cooperated with God's rescue and deliverance, live into a new heavens and a new earth. All of the cosmos, all of reality redeemed and restored, not just to its original beauty, but enhanced. Because while the full presence and glory of God was slightly held back in the Garden of Eden, in the new heavens and new earth, it's unrestrained. So that you get language in, in the latter, uh, these latter chapters of saying, like, you, you don't need a sun and a moon. Like, the, the glory of the Lord just fills everything. It's overwhelming. It's amazing. That's the end game that God is driving toward. But that end game, before we get to that point, it passes through a day of judgment. When Jesus says, I will separate the sheep from the goats. I will make a distinction between those who have yielded their hearts to me, who have acknowledged me as Savior and Lord, and who have received my consistent offer, or have received my offer of rescue. And there will be those who have spent their lives rejecting it, hardening their hearts, turning away, running. I don't want to look at the face. Hide me. I got my own stuff to do. I'm fine. I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I don't believe in you, God. And even if I did, I would hate you. Judgment is coming. So please hear the promise and the peril of this passage. The promise of this passage is to understand that no one here fleeing, no one in this passage who is fleeing, we have any indication is someone who is a believer. Christians don't need to live under the fear of judgment or condemnation. Scripture makes it clear, Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not who are good people or who have decided to like renounce doing bad things and just started doing good things. For those who are in Jesus, who have said, I, I want to be found in you, Jesus. I want you to save me. I give you my life. 
Because judgment and condemnation has already been leveled against Jesus at the cross on their behalf. Jesus willingly absorbed the judgment that we should have occurred on judgment day so that we could receive the inheritance of eternal life that he deserved from his perfect obedience to God the Father when he was here. And now in Jesus, those who turn to him can be forgiven and restored to God, sealed with the Spirit, given eternal life. So there's no longer any fear because you've been adopted into the family of God. That is the promise of this passage, that it holds no threat to those who have sincerely yielded their lives to Jesus. But here's the peril. To continually reject the Lamb's offer of forgiveness, to continually reject Jesus' offer of grace and restoration and redemption, is to court his wrath. We don't talk about the wrath of Jesus very much, either at this church or at many other churches. But the New Testament talks about it a lot. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul encourages the Christians by saying, Jesus is coming back to enact vengeance, that's Bible's language, not mine, vengeance against those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. And so while it might make us comfortable, or might, maybe there's some dissonance if we only kind of lean into an emphasis of Jesus is loving and compassionate and merciful, the New Testament is honest in key parts, and this would be one of them, where to continually avoid, reject, ignore God is a dangerous thing. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, makes it very clear. He asks a rhetorical question. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God is saying, listen, I don't take any pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. That's not my heart. My heart is that all would come to repentance. But Revelation makes it clear that God will not suffer fools forever who reject him and ignore him. I'll grant that Christians don't all agree on exactly the mechanisms leading up to this final judgment and all the details around it. But again, please don't miss the forest for the trees. However this day and this hour is going to unfold, judgment day is coming. And there is nothing in creation, there's no resource within yourself that's going to be able to shield you from God's judgment. If your posture continues to stay in unbelief, resistance, and rejection of Jesus. Because there's only one thing powerful enough to deliver you, to actually shield you from the consequences of God's judgment, and that is the blood of Jesus. That's what can cleanse us from sin. That's what kind of smeared over the doorposts of our heart will allow the angel of death and judgment to pass over so that we can be saved and we can be brought into a new land, into a new heavens and a new earth. Not because we're amazing, not because of our righteousness, not because of our goodness, but simply because we said yes to Jesus and then began to follow him. So if you're running from God, 
if you've never allowed the calamities that befall you to humble you and redirect you towards him, if you've obstinately refused to yield to his love, to reject his grace because you're confident in your own ability to stand, both in this life and before him one day. Please hear what I'm saying. You are running headlong into destruction. You are facilitating your ruin. Turn to Jesus. He came in love so that the justice of God could be satisfied. He punished and condemned sin in himself on behalf of those who would put their trust in him so that those who were condemned to wrath and destruction could be given a new life. A new life that begins right here and now. New hope. And then stretches out forever. Jesus called it eternal life. And it's all by grace. By turning from your self-centered ways and putting your trust in Jesus. So whether you're here live, whether you're listening on live stream, whether you're watching this video a month, a year, a decade into the future, please don't waste opportunities like this. Stop living in arrogance. Stop living in prideful self-assurance. For those who are not in Christ, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon Jesus to save and redeem your life. Let's pray.